We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. The Gospel of Mark in chapter 2. Give me a, give you a story to introduce this. Years ago, I was back in the 80s, I had a call from a philosophy class over in North Texas. And they wanted me to come and present the fundamentalist view of salvation. Whenever a lot of times in sociology, psychology classes, they'll need a guinea pig. And so they look under F for fundy, okay. And they call me. And so I came to speak. And what they did was they had other religions come in before me and they presented their ideas. And then they brought in Skunk Boy here to talk about salvation through Christ. And just before I got up, the professor showed a film. And it was a film of uh, an Englishman. An Englishman just sounds smart, you know. And he was talking to people about other religions. And every week he would visit a other religion site of worship. And this time he was talking about fundamentalism. And he visited this church up in Indianapolis that was fundy to the undies, okay? I think the name of it was, you're going to hell and I'm glad Baptist Church, okay? But the pastor got up and it showed him saying, how many of you here know you're going to go to heaven? Hands went up. And then it showed him talking to the guy that was the head of the bus ministry. And he said, what is salvation? And the guy simply said to him, S-A-V-E, save. Didn't sound real brilliant right there. And then he tried to explain it. Well, afterwards, he uh, was outside the church, leaning against one of the pillars of the church. And he was explaining about these people. These, and I'm, we're watching this film just before I get up to speak about what Christianity is. And uh, he said, you know... As I visited with them, I found them to be charming people. But I wondered at how, when the pastor said, how many of you are going to heaven? He said, they raised their hands as if judgment day had already come. And I said, thank you, Jesus. You have delivered him into my hand. They said, yes, as though judgment day had already come. He, as smart as he was, he could not understand how a Christian could have assurance now of heaven then. In other words, what could he not understand? The person and work of Christ. All other religions were rungs on the ladder by which you would earn your way to God. And as a result, you can never say you're going to heaven. Matter of fact, with most of them, you don't have heaven. Uh, Muslim heaven is a lot like a, a keg party, you know. And so you really can't say you're going to heaven because you don't know. It's presumption to say so. If it, however, salvation depends upon the righteousness of Christ, the sufficiency of his death, then to say that you're not is a, a great act of impiety because you're doubting God. Amen? Yeah, and he couldn't see it. And so I got up and I said, our guest here said to us, he could not understand how a Christian 
could say that he knew he was going to heaven. And I said, on the contrary, a Christian can never say he's going to heaven. If getting to heaven in any way depends upon him, but if it depends upon the person of Jesus Christ, the sufficiency of his death, the gift he bestows of divine righteousness, then the Christian can say that whoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have now present tense everlasting life. And so I was able to share that all other religions are basically the same. Did y'all know that? They're all the same. I work here for a reward there. It all falls on me. It is a self-righteous attainment. And thus you can never rejoice. There are no hymn books that come out in those religions. There is only doubt. In Christianity, it rests upon the activity of another. And so in Mark chapter 2, this is the first time in Jesus' ministry that he's going to pronounce an individual as saved. The woman at the well that was a little earlier, she went away and said, come meet a man who told me all the things that I've done, implying forgiveness. She figured that out. This is one where Christ says to him that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin, to pronounce you clean now and say your sins are forgiven. Rise, take up your pallet and walk. This is a tectonic shift in his ministry. He is now going to apply what he has been teaching. Can a Christian say, I am going to heaven? Yes, he can. How do we know Jesus says so? Watch this. In verse 1, when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, in other words, in verse 40 through verse 45, he has done his first preaching tour of Galilee. And now in verse 1, a word travels, and it was heard that he is at home, probably Peter's home. And so he returns. Incidentally, remember that mother-in-law of Peter? that she was healed and began to serve Christ and his people. And now Christ has encroached upon her home. Can women be real particular about their homes? I've heard that that's, that's true. Well, Christ took over her home. So ladies, the, the, the truth is, quit your what's called beliekina from the Greek, all right? If he wants to take it over, then he can take it over. Let's move on. And so in verse two, many were gathered together. There was no longer room, not even near the door. He was speaking the word. There've been a lot of sermons on that verse to pastors. Would you like to have people jammed in your church? Here's the way you do it. Speak the word. Incidentally, don't overlook that term. It's novel. Uh, he doesn't speak merely about the word, the Old Testament, which he does. But he speaks the word. Everything that comes out of his mouth is truth. 
They said of him, the soldiers, never a man spake as this man. They marveled at the gracious words falling from his lips. It says this in, in prophecy. I will raise up a prophet among their countrymen like you, God says to Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. What is Christ's title in John 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh. He is the revelation of God in action and in word. It's great when you're Christ, you don't have to do scripture memory, you know. You just say it and it's Bible. And we're lucky, John said, that he didn't record everything that he said. Otherwise, there aren't enough rooms in the libraries of the world. So we got all that we need. But it says, and it shall come about whoever will not listen to the words which he shall speak, my words which he'll speak in my name, I will require it of him. He is the very word of God. I can speak about the word, but what I say is not inspired. I wish it was, but it's not. Everything Christ said was the word of God. How would you like to take notes on a Jesus sermon? Everything is true. And so he is speaking the word. And so Christ is very successful in his intent. The intent of Christ's ministry was not to do miracles. The intent of his ministry was to do miracles, to validate what he was saying that men could gather in great numbers and to be enlightened concerning God. What is more important, to have your disease removed or to have your mind open to the truth? Yes, we can spend a lot of money on doctors, but only Christ can open your mind to the truth of God. And so this is the joy of his life, is the enlightenment of the word. I have been asked before, is it difficult to preach two times a Sunday? And I said, well, considering I'm a septuagenarian, uh, <laughs> it could be. But I say, no, it's not. And they say, why is that? And I've been asked that. And I said, what you have to do is you have to just take a look at those that are in the congregation because our people are smarter than all others, okay? Especially the first service. The second service struggles somewhat. <laughs> but all you've got to do is look up, if you're mean, and look at you because I see that people are here for business. They want to have their, the Word of God explained. And when you see that, uh, all you're thinking is, God, let me be clear. You don't have to be dynamic. You don't have to be whatever, but you've got to be clear. And so that motivates every pastor is to clarify the truth of God. And so this was Jesus's joy. They brought him food. He said, I don't need food. They said, did you bring him any food? He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It's to, it's to bring men to the truth of God. And so he is speaking the word one commentator said, Isaiah's prophecy has here been fulfilled. Isaiah said, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And so it's happening. And that's his joy. He'll always be on boats talking on the shore to crowds and houses where they're packed out 
in synagogues where they're packed out, on hillsides where he gives the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane at the upper room. This is Jesus's joy, is to reconnect humans to God. That's his joy. And you do that by truth. And so in verse three, we have a, an interruption in the service. They came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and they're going to lower him through the roof. You don't want to try it here. That's a long rope. You're going to have to let him down. But this is a man that is in desperate condition. Verse three says he's a paralytic. He's a quadriplegic. He can do nothing for himself. It's a great picture of salvation. Are you and I spiritually, before we come to Christ, are we paralytics? Yes, we are. We cannot speak the truth. We cannot see the truth. We cannot, we cannot respond to it. We are dead in sin. And four men bring him. Some have felt that there is a symbolism here. Who is it that brings the paralytic into the presence of God? It will be men. Is there any place on earth that does not struggle in their culture with sin? There is no place. And so they're going to bring to him men from the north, the south, the east, and the west. Four men are going to bring that man to him. And so in verse 4, they're unable to get to him because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. There, in every Jewish house, you had a uh, staircase on the outside that went to the roof. Matter of fact, the law says you had to have a parapet, about two-foot fence around the top of your house. Otherwise, you were uh, culpable if anybody fell off. And so that is where you would go up and visit with people in the cool. And so the roof consisted of uh, tile, and under that was hard clay, and under that were branches, and under that were the wood beams. And so you pull off the tile, and you dig your way through. Try this at home, and you'll see how it works. Okay. And so they start digging through the roof. And in verse 5, Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, these people deeply believed in Christ and they deeply believe that he can do what nobody else can do. And he sees their faith. And he says, literally, child, your sins are forgiven. He pronounces a man cleansed. Now, why does he do that? Alfred Edersheim, the great commentator on about this thick, called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, he said that in Jewish perspective, they felt that any suffering you had was because of sin, that physical suffering was merited because of sin. Uh, do you remember in John 9, they said to Jesus, about the blind man, for whose sins was he made blind? His or his parents? And Jesus said, for no sins, but that the glory of God might be seen. But this was their thought. 
And so the man is struggling with his sin. And they felt that, and it, the statement went like this, just as salt is required in all sacrifices, and it was, if you don't know that. And whenever you presented a sacrifice, there was a smattering of salt, remembering the covenant of salt God made with Abraham. And so your, your coming to God in prayer was based upon God's faithfulness. Just as there is salt in all sacrifice, so there must be uh, repentance in all healing, unquote, Jewish tradition. And so this man is brought, and what is on his mind is my sin. And Jesus simply says, my child, your sins are forgiven. Well, in verse 6, the scribes were sitting there, reasoning in their hearts. The scribes are there, not because they believe or they're seeking, but this is the inquisition. This is the Jewish mind control groups. They're there to make sure he doesn't say anything wrong because he's so popular. You may remember in the gospel of John, when John the Baptist began his ministry, it said the Pharisees were sent to him from Jerusalem saying, who art thou? And so this is the inquisition. Who are you? What do you believe? Well, the scribes were reasoning in their hearts. Uh, make a note. Whenever you have divine revelation butting up against human reason, you're going to have problems. If you try to confine God and call Christ to the bar of human reason, divine revelation is going to suffer. If you eliminate things that don't seem to make sense to you, the Bible will suffer. That's the essence of liberalism, is to call God to the bar of human reason. And so their reasoning, this is above them, that a man can claim an attribute of God. And to a Jew, that was blasphemy. For you to take on the divine claim are for you to, to claim an attribute that only God could do. That was blasphemy. And so in verse five, your sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? How can this man claim something only God can do? That's why the man in the film had a problem with Christianity, is that Christ was making a divine claim that he could grant salvation. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised from the dead, you shall be saved. Done. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Uh, in Israel's view of the Son of Man, and I'll explain that in a moment, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. The Son of Man is a term that's used twice in the Old Testament about the Messiah. He's the Son of Man. And they felt that he was a great man, a divinely sent man, but they would not say that he was God. You may remember to the disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? 
Who do men say? That you're John the Baptist? That you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets? That you're Elijah? You're supernatural. You're magic. Who do you say that I am? Peter, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're, you're divine. You're the son of God. Blessed art thou, Simon. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't figure this out on your own. Peter, you were a 2-6 in high school, all right? You didn't figure this out. But heaven has revealed it. And so men on their own do not claim that humans are gods. And so the problem that they had with, with Christ is they felt that Messiah, his essential role was not forgiveness. It was to grant political freedom. It was not to release you from sin, but to release you from Rome. That it was not repentance that the nation needed. It was political restoration. In other words, they wanted a king like the Gentiles. One that will give us victory, but will not preach to us. That the nation wanted to be fixed, but they did not want to repent before God. Can that ever be true of a nation? We need a president that will bring blessing, but do not mention God or sin. We don't want to be preached to. That's why they got rid of, you remember a guy named Samuel? And they fired him. And it was because he was just too darn preachy. God said, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. And God gave them a king like the Gentiles, Saul. And so, uh, I want to show you something. Keep your finger right there. Go back to, to uh, or go in Mark to chapter 14. In verse 62, at Christ's trial before the Sanhedrin, and it was asked him in verse 61, the high priest was questioning him, are you the Christ, the son of the living, of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. He takes the divine name and you shall see the son of man. And he's quoting here from Daniel chapter seven. The son of man sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven and tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. Christ made a claim that he was going to return someday from the presence of God, that he was the son of man that would be at the right hand of God in the clouds of heaven. And that was too high a claim for Caiaphas. And he claimed blasphemy. Show you something else. Go to your left to chapter 12 and verse 25 or 35. In 12, 35, and Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David, that he is a man? Why do the scribes say that he is the Davidic king, son of David? Because David in verse 36 said, and the Holy Spirit and divine inspiration, 
And he quotes here from Psalm 110. The Lord, meaning God, said to my Lord, Messiah. Do y'all see what Christ is noting? What does God say about the Messiah? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I put your enemies under your feet. 37, David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he David's son? Now you and I would have no problem with that. He is David's son and that he is born of the genealogy of David and he is a man. But he is not just a man, he is God. He is perfect humanity, undiminished deity, united in one person forever. That is the confession of Chalcedon. Well, if you don't have the benefit of the New Testament to draw clarity, what do you say? They had merely seen Christ as a great man. Jesus points out that David called the Messiah God. And what did they say? In verse, well, you don't see it here, but uh, it says they dared to ask him no more questions. Never get into an argument with an omniscient being. Okay. You say, Tommy, that's my wife. I understand that may happen. And I'm that knows things. Well, go back here to Mark in chapter two, verse eight. Let me stop just a second. They're having a problem with two things, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. How can this man be God? And how can this man save? How can he declare you as righteous before God and forgiven? How can you do that? Do people still have a problem with Christianity because of those two reasons? How can you claim that this man is the second person of the Trinity? That he is God? And how can you say that through no work of your own, but simply the forensic or the declarative work of him because of seeing your faith that he declares you as fit for heaven. Won't that lead to sin? Isn't that, the Muslims say, isn't that idolatry for you to make a man God? And will it not lead for, to sin that you think you're already fit for heaven? You know what their problem is? You have the divine revelation runs head to head with human reason and revelation loses. Well, watch this. Jesus in verse eight, immediately aware in his spirit, they were reasoning that way. Notice verse six, reasoning in their hearts. Eight, reasoning that way. Man left to himself, will never come to the knowledge of Christ. Why? Because man will not embrace a system 
that condemns him. For you to become a Christian, you must admit to three things. I, on my brilliance alone, cannot figure out God. I know that's hard to believe. But I, on my wisdom alone, can't figure out God. And I, on my righteousness alone, cannot earn his favor. And I, in my strength alone, cannot accomplish my salvation. Are those difficult things to admit? They're impossible. A human won't do that. Only God can affect that person to that belief. Well, watch this. And so aware that they were reasoning that way, said to them, why are you, you notice the word again? It's mentioned three times. Why? Because Rome, that Peter is, uh, Mark is writing to, had what was called the Greco-Roman philosophy of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. They had morphed it into their own. They have their own reason that comes up with stuff. That's why when you see their, their statues of men in Greece and in Rome, they almost look human. It was the idealization of man. And so, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? In verse 9, let me give you, he says, a, uh, a symbol. Which is easier to say? To the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. The answer is, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you don't have to prove it. You just say your sins are forgiven. Uh, David Koresh, y'all remember him? Yeah. He said that there should be no sex among married couples, that the wives should have sex with him. And the children, it would be his that he would bestow upon the men to raise. Brilliant. How do we know, David, that's true? Well, because I'm getting it from God. Oh, okay. I was wondering, how can I know this? That's a pretty dangerous thing you're asking me to believe. To make a claim of God is easy. Backing it up, Jesus said, wisdom is known by her children or by her deeds. Let me see it. Jesus Ye shall know them by their fruits. Let me see it. And so in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Do y'all see that? The Son of Man, that's who he claims to be. Let me give you a, a little deal on who, that's only mentioned twice toward Messiah in the uh, Bible, son of man. It's Christ's favorite term for himself is the son of man. In Acts, I'm sorry, in Psalm chapter eight, when I consider the heavens and the works of thy hands, what is man that thou art concerned with him? Are the son of man that thou dost take note of him? But you have made him for a little while lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor and put all things under his feet. David mentions the son of man as 
Quote, man. What is man? Adam and his progeny, you guys, us, the sons of, son of men. What are we that God would notice us? Who cares? We're so small. But God has made us kings of the earth. We're in the very image of God. So son of man is a term for man, the ruler. Question, when you look around at mankind today, do you see man as the ruler? We see man in a mess. And that's why the book of Hebrews said, we do not yet see all things submitted to him. He's a mess. So how is man going to get back to his position as the very uh, vice regent of God? How's that going to happen? Daniel chapter 7. You see the coming of God to judge the earth in prophecy, and fire is coming from his throne in prophecy, and myriads are gathered before him, and thousands are ministering to him, the angelic realm, and mankind is now standing before God. Daniel 7. And all of a sudden, Daniel sees one coming from heaven, and he comes up to the Ancient of Days and is presented. And God the Father bestows all authority on this man to judge and then rule with a rod of iron. You know what that man is called? He's the Messiah. But in that text, in Daniel 7, he's not called the Messiah. Guess what he's called? The Son of Man. I saw one coming like a Son of Man. Aha! The classic man that has not been tainted by sin, this virgin-born man of whom it is said, who accuses me of sin? He is presented before God, and God makes him the classic man, the last Adam rule. And so son of man means man, the vice regent of God, that has lost his position, that is fulfilled by the Messiah, the Son of Man. And so Jesus states that you might know that, and he takes that title to himself. And I believe, well, in Mark and in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that this is the first time he does it. I am the Son of Man. I am the Adamic longing. I am man's perfect God, and I am God's perfect man. It's called the incarnation. That's me. And in verse 10, I have authority on earth. It's not the word dunamis that means power. It's the word exousia, E-X-O-U-S-I-A, that means authority. It's like you're on an airplane, you act up, a stewardess comes back. She weighs 127 pounds. She's five foot two. Can she toss you off that plane? Like right then, if she wants to. Why? Because she has the dunamis power? No, she's too little. But she has the exousia. It proceeds from her. She is a stewardess. That's why I always tell flight attendants, we're flight attendants. I say, no, you ain't. The guy that hands out peanuts as a flight attendant. 
You are a steward, a stewardess. You can toss people off the plane. Are they convinced? No, but I tell them anyway. Okay. <laughs> You're a steward. And so in verse 10, I'm the son of man and I have authority. Doug, you don't have that authority. You can't pronounce people forgiven. I can't do it. Skip, you can't do it. None of us can claim the authority of God. Apostles could recognize it. Whose ever sins you remit have been remitted. Whose ever you retain have been retained. They can recognize the guys, but they can't do it. In verse 10, he has authority on earth to forgive sins. How can a man on earth before you stand before the might of the Almighty, declare that you are saved. If you confess with your mouth, He is Lord, God raised from the dead, you shall be saved. How can that be true? Verse 11, I'm going to show something to you. He said, Get up, I will give you life. Pick up your pallet, I will give you miraculous life. When you are a paralytic and you've been laying there, uh, Peter will take a guy from his mother's womb that is paralyzed. What does your muscle tone look like? It is not there. You're, you are sticks and cords. That is all that you are. Get up. All of a sudden, this is precocious life. Immediately. He is healed and he gets up. Heck, whenever Peter does a guy's laying from his mother's womb, you'd have had to teach him how to walk, but he doesn't. He immediately has life. And so he rises, he walks, and he picks up his pallet. Your old life is behind you. What confined you, you now dominate. You are facing a whole new life. Go home. That is a graphic picture of salvation. You and I question, did we come to God as paralyzed? Yes, we did. By God's grace, we saw we were paralyzed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek and are broken. And blessed are those who want something they can't have and they'll die if they don't get it. They hunger and thirst or righteousness, they shall be filled. And so all of a sudden, we are paralyzed and God pronounces us, if you believe in me, you shall be saved. And we trust him. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. So if I see a guy trust Christ here, can I say to him that he is saved? Yes. How will I know it for certain? I'll see it in his life. But I can say you have met the requirement. You have believed in your heart. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. You should be saved and also your household. If they put their faith, they are saved too. Is that right? That's how easy it is. Question, easy for who? Easy for us. 
There's a fellow in heaven with mortal wounds. It was not easy for him. Like the immortal prophet Lyndon Johnson said, there ain't no free lunch. <laughs> Salvation is free. Did somebody have to pay? Somebody paid in his shed blood. And so you don't see that here. You got to keep reading to find out about the payment. And so you and I are paralyzed. God pronounced us forgiven. Did we have divine life? Yes, there was. And our life became B.C., A.D., before Christ, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Well, in verse 12, you'll see now the responses. He got up and immediately picked up the pallet, and he went out in the sight of everyone, and they were all amazed. You see that term amazed twice in the previous context. They were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed at his, at, that he could cast out the demons. And now they are amazed at the power of God. And thus they glorified God. They said there is no way that this could have happened except by God. And they stated in verse 12, we have never seen anything like this. You know what Edersheim, the great commentator, said on that? He felt that that was a parallel statement to the Egyptians whenever they were struck by Moses. And they said, this is the finger of God. This can't be of human doing. And that's what the crowd said. And that's what men are meant to say when they see salvation. Look what God did. And thus we call those people Christians because it is Christ that did it. We don't call them Dugians, okay? That's if you're going to save yourself, Doug, you're now a Dugian, all right? You're a Patonian, all right? It is a Christian. You're saved by the grace of God. And so the crowd could only say one thing. Look what God has done. And there is another response in verse 13. Jesus went out again by the seashore because now we got a bigger crowd and all the people were coming to him and he was teaching them. This is his joy not to do physical healings. Question, this paralytic, is he going to have to go die again someday? Yeah. yeah. His greatest joy is salvation. All right. And as Edersheim, great commentator, said, he said, the crowd is amazed, Christ is glorified. The lame man walks. He said, there's only one group of people that receive nothing, and that's the rationalists, the scribes, the guys that said he can't be who he said he is. He can't do what he said he can do. They went away. And right here, you begin to see a kernel, a seed begin that is later going to erupt in the trial and crucifixion of Christ. Us and this guy can't coexist. Somebody has got to be converted or somebody's got to die. Cain and Abel struggle. 
because Cain doesn't like the shedding of blood for salvation. Isaac and Ishmael struggle because Ishmael does not like that you're the child by faith, not by human works. And Jacob and Esau struggle because Esau is a child of the flesh and he can't understand why a birthright to be God's chosen would be more esteemed than a happy meal. That's Esau. And that we have the same struggles today with our fellow humans. I don't like that dang cross, the shedding of blood for salvation. Erasmus said to Luther, he said, uh, how can you say that God must have death for forgiveness? And Luther said, I think ye make God too human. He's holy. And they don't like the idea that you're saved by faith. And they don't like the idea that we sing about something higher than this earth. Well, why is this text important? Shows us a number of things. Number one, is Jesus Christ divine? Yes. He thinks he is. And the Pharisees think that's what he thinks he is. Number two, can he forgive those that have no life whatsoever? Yes, he can. He can take one with no life and he can grant him forgiveness. Number three, those that he pronounces as forgiven, do they have new life? And they have it right now. They have new life. And the past is done. And there's something ahead of you that you have never seen. Number four, great lesson. If you're a seeker, you can't use excuses for not coming to Christ. Zacchaeus did not bellyache that people said he's going to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. They insulted him. He didn't care. Uh, the uh, paralytic doesn't complain because the crowd won't make way for him. Blind Bartimaeus doesn't crowd a complain that those who led the way said to this leper, this blind leper, sternly told him to keep quiet. He kept on crying out. The woman with the issue of blood has no problem coming up through the crowd to get to Christ. Uh, the sinful woman that had the Pharisees say, if he knew who she was, he would not let her touch him. She doesn't get her feelings hurt. She keeps coming. Uh, how many times have you seen people, have you considered Christ? No, because when I was 19, the Baptist church, the Methodist church, the Catholics, and they show what men did. Therefore, they don't want the one that men congregate around. This guy will not let that be an excuse. He's going to find his way to Christ. And then the fifth thing is Christ does something that is completely unique. Nobody we have never seen anything like this before. When you hear the claim of who Christ is and you see the resultant life of his people, your only statement can be, 
This is a work of God. Isn't that good? Father in heaven, we go forth and we say to the world, you have never seen what you are about to see. You're going to see a people that have a divine revelation that supersedes human reason. A divine person that supersedes human reason. That we're going to make a claim that supersedes human reason. That we are saved now because he is the son of man and he has exousia. He has the authority to forgive those who come to him. And so, Lord, if there's a man or a woman here this morning who is paralyzed, that has nothing but the knowledge of their sin, and that left to themselves, they cannot walk, I pray that you would open their hearts to the beauty of this man, that you would open their hearts to the awesomeness of what he can do. And yet we know far more than they knew that were there at the site, that in him pronouncing another man forgiven, we could bring up the question, but there is sin. It must be paid for. God's wrath must be appeased. The law must be avenged. Sin must be redeemed. Someone is going to have to die for what we did. To which Mark would say to us, keep on reading. Just keep on reading. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name.